Hello and welcome to another episode of Eat This Podcast with me, Jeremy Chirpus. Today, food revolts. You could actually do a timeline of revolts and they all have the same thing. People gather together, they air their grievances. Sometimes someone in authority listens to their grievances. More often it leads to a march on London. Once they get to London, authority figures tend to come out and offer deals to them. If they accept the deals, they get executed sort of fairly quickly. Um, If they don't accept the deals and they continue to rebel, then authority puts an army in the field and it ends like that. My name's Diane Perkis, and I'm the author of English Food, A People's History. I'm a professor at Oxford University. My book last night won the Guilds of British Food Writers Award for Best Book. Congratulations. Thank you very much. I was absolutely astonished. I think the word is probably gobsmacked in the context, Um, but delighted, of course, and honoured. Of course. I'd arranged to talk to Diane Perkis before the Guild of Food Writers made English Food their best food book of 2023, but it's always good to be topical. Her book is a fascinating read across more than a thousand years of English food history, a well-deserving winner. But precisely because it contains so much of interest, I had no intention of even attempting to do a general survey. Instead, I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of food in history that I think has a lot of modern resonance. So let me just ask you first off, as far as English history goes, when's the first recorded um, food riot? It's a difficult question because it depends on what you categorize as a food riot. Um, And that's why I'm giving a, a cautious historian answer Um, So for me, the peasants' revolt is connected with food, but not all historians would immediately agree to that. Um, I would also strongly suggest that many um, disturbances in even earlier periods connected with Roman rules, such as the revolt of the Iceni, probably have a food element that's not typically emphasized in histories, because histories tend to be written by people who aren't food poor. Indeed, it might be faster to talk about what rebellions don't have a food element. (laughs) Very many um, rebellions where the 90% ordinary people get involved have an element that's connected with food. Yeah, yeah. But okay, let's let's put aside historianly quibbles for a minute and talk about the the peasants revolt because that's 14th century yes that's right during the reign of richard ii when he's actually really quite a tiny baby he's only 14 years old and what's the story well the story is really the usual one the situation in the country is problematic because we're living through the uh, um the little ice age The Little Ice Age in and of itself leads to food shortages because it means that main crops are only marginally viable. So crops that people are used to relying on, like wheat, 
become sickly and develop mildew and harvests reduce in size. And at exactly that time, um, you also have um, flood conditions and it's difficult to plough and it's difficult to sow. And eventually, what this leads to is the recognition that the changing conditions aren't changing the upper classes or life for the upper classes, but are changing things drastically for most people. So it upsets ordinary people's sense of justice that they are asked at a difficult time to pay tax to support the war in France. They get nothing out of the war in France. Um, the war in France is largely a matter of nobles increasing the lands they hold and the aspirations of the monarchy. Um, and it, it it starts, therefore, as very many revolts do, with refusing to pay tax. And that's not obviously connected with food. And yet it is, because people will refuse to pay a tax that they consider only marginally just if it's excruciatingly painful to pay it. And the, the monarchy was willing to charge five pence, um, which is a huge tax for very poor people. Um, and eventually, people collectively start refusing to pay and they find themselves a leader. We don't know how that happened. A man called Watt Tyler, who's very determined and actually very reckless um, and belligerent. Um, and that's what turns it from a quiet refusal to a full-scale revolt. Um, and it, it leads to the inevitable one. You, know, you could actually do a timeline of revolts and they all have the same thing. People gather together, they air their grievances. Sometimes someone in authority listens to their grievances. More often it leads to a march on London. Once they get to London, authority figures tend to come out and offer deals to them. If they accept the deals, they get executed sort of fairly quickly. Um, if they don't accept the deals and they continue to rebel, then authority puts an army in the field and it ends like that. And this is very typical. This is exactly what tends to happen when ordinary people decide they don't have to take it and that they're not going to take it. It's rarely well tolerated by the authorities, and this is no exception. Oh, sure. What Tyler ends up being executed and violently executed as an example to others. And, and how do his followers react? We don't know a lot about what his followers do, but we do know that they don't then settle meekly down. There are a series of other rebellions of comparable size and with comparable lists of demands, up to and including Jack Cade's rebellion, which was so memorable that it made its way into Shakespeare, even though it was the rebellion was in the 15th century and Shakespeare's writing very much later at the end of the 16th century. So it, these these revolts are really disturbing to the worldview of the better educated because they don't understand why people are taking up arms and why people who yesterday were willing to doff their caps are today arming themselves with pitchforks and bows and arrows because they don't understand the food economy that's impelling it. Because they're not hungry. That's exactly right. And there's a wonderful argument about the moment at which the upper classes separate themselves fully from the hunger experienced by most people. And it's been argued that this actually happens in the period of Jack Cade's rebellion, 
that that's the moment um, sometime in the 15th century after the Wars of the Roses, so from 1485, the upper classes become able to safeguard themselves against even the gnawing hunger that would go with being involved in a siege or involved in the siege of a castle or involved in a crusade. All of that no longer exists for the very well-off. So they can't imaginatively even connect with the vast majority of their subjects who kind of understandably go on feeling hungry for the next five centuries um, in a misunderstood way. One, one thing puzzles me about the poll tax behind the Peasants' Revolt. This, it's 1380-odd, so we've had the Black Death and my understanding from sort of agricultural history is that because so many people died, um, laborers, farm laborers, agricultural workers were actually able to increase their wages. So yep. could, could they really not afford it? Even though they'd increased their wages, it didn't necessarily mean that they could easily afford to pay a fairly substantial tax. But I think the main issue is that they couldn't see the point of paying the tax. It didn't do any good for them. It was, from their point of view, completely unnecessary. There's also a funny thing about revolutions, and that is that people actually tend to rebel when some kind of gain is being taken away from them, mm -hmm. rather than when they're at absolute rock bottom. People who've enjoyed a sudden improvement in their circumstances are much more likely to take political action to try to retain that improvement then they are likely to take political action if they're literally starving in the gutter where they won't have the energy or the physical resources to do so. Right, right. Um, was, it, was it always, I mean, was the argument always we don't have enough to eat or were there, as it were, higher level arguments behind these, some of these food riots? In the case of the Peasants' Revolt, the higher level argument was probably one about taxation and representation. We, wouldn't no we would nowadays think of the representation part first. But in their case, there's a, a settled belief that nobody has a right to impose taxes. And any new taxation is always very difficult to justify. I mean, we've seen in our own lifetimes the reintroduction of the poll tax with and it's been met with a similar lack of enthusiasm. People don't like the idea of a new tax, and they particularly don't like the idea of a new tax that's not overtly about benefiting them in some direct way. It's possible that if you tell people now that a new tax is going to fund a new hospital, they might be more willing to pay it than to pay a general increase in income tax. And, and this is sort of similar. The mindset is similar. People want to know what right the king has to take what they see as their resources. And that is quite a high-level argument, actually. It's about where sovereignty lies. It's about what role people without a vote and without any land or property might play in the polity. But the, the fact that people were working on the land to produce food which essentially they had little access to, must have been a factor as well. I mean, they were working to, to pay rents, I guess. They were working to pay rents and also to muster up enough cash for things that they couldn't make themselves. But yeah, um, generally speaking, there's a, an overall problem with feudalism 
in that most of the time you are working to create wealth for somebody else. And this is moderately obvious to you as well, as you, in some respects, literally hand over the wealth to either the person collecting tithes for the clergy or the landlord. So mm. you spend hours in the heat threshing and you don't get the grain. You get what you can glean from the field later or you get what you've managed to grow in your own tiny strip. Mm. Meanwhile, the bulk of the grain goes to somebody else. It does make inegalitarian arrangements very visible and material in a way that working in a factory, for example, not so much. It's not so evident that you're doing something for somebody else that someone's taking from you. And and to what extent um, were the enclosures uh, whereby common land was, was taken into private possession, did, did, did the enclosures trigger much in the way of food riots? Huge riots. I mean, arguably, the, one of the largest rebellions in English history is at least in part related to the Tudor enclosure program, and that's the Pilgrimage of Grace, which was able to put 30,000 rebels in the field to oppose the royal army. That's probably proportionately a larger rebellion than any we've ever seen. Um, and it, it's at least partly to do with the redistribution of monastic lands and the aggregation of those lands to the estates of individual nobles. And worse still, the repurposing of those lands, not for subsistence farming, but for a range of different cash crops, such as wool or hunting reserves, where no food benefit is emerging for anybody, even in imagination. And, and therefore, that kind of rioting tends to be sporadic and local, depending on when your particular bit of common land gets enclosed by somebody or other. Um, and so it, it's really just a steady beat, beat, beat throughout the whole of history. That The enclosure process starts in Tudor England and goes on into the mid-19th century with the um, drainage of the fens in East Anglia and the enclosure of the last sort of remote bits of Britain like Altmore in Oxfordshire. And, and as soon as someone gets enclosed, there are nearly always disturbances and enclosure riots, and sometimes they're very sustained. Because you are literally taking... Uh, taking a common from under the goose that was previously living on it. But the, you, you mentioned that the, the response to the enclosures tended to be local um, when your bit of the commons was enclosed. Uh, and, and I get the feeling, reading through the various examples that you give in your book, I get the feeling that it, it didn't really gel across the country into what we might now recognise as a revolution. No, it didn't. That's quite right. It didn't really. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things is that England never has a revolution, despite having all the conditions for a revolution. And it, it's a mysterious absence, really. And one obvious reason for it is that the authorities in the early 19th century were hyper-conscious of the French example and very anxious and nervous about it. I mean, it led, for example, I've recently learned to much severity in all of the armed forces, the army and the navy, the flogging rates massively increased. And that was a direct response to fears of revolutionary activity. Um, and you have um, the pit regime of censorship and efforts to control the press and control the spread of radical ideas. Um, and in a way, repression does work. It, yeah, it's worth noting that repression will succeed. 
um, and that's probably one of the underlying reasons. But I think the other underlying reason is actually that British people, English people particularly, have a, a profound sense of investment in local solutions, even when those local solutions look to an outsider unlikely to work. And and so there is something of a history of people being more interested in striking a deal with their own local landlord than they are in joining up with people in the next county over. And my favorite example of that is the Oxfordshire Rising, which is 1595. It's one of the least successful revolutions in history. <laughs> I mean, it's literally two dozen men with pitchforks. Again, it's to do with land use and land ownership um, and thus food. But But it's also... Um, permeated with secret agents, uh, double agents who report every act to the authorities. It's doomed. But it, it's interesting because it's so short-sighted, it's so narrow-minded, it doesn't want to be about trying to get them going in Somerset as well. Only nobles do that kind of plans for rising. I mean, Wyatt's Rebellion is an attempt to raise the whole country. It fails, but it's an attempt. And they send you know, a group of people to Suffolk to try and get them going, a group of people to Cornwall to try and get them going. Peasants won't do that because they don't really have the resources to plan like that. Oh, so they can't organise, as today's activists might say. Well, I don't think it's that they can't. It's more that they don't think of doing so. Ah. Um, and Keith Thomas said a wonderful thing once in a seminar, that the main reason people don't walk down a shopping street and smash all the windows and steal things is actually because it doesn't occur to them. <laughs> I'll come back to that. I will come back to that. Um, and there are circumstances in which it starts occurring to them, and yeah, that's usually known as a breakdown of law and order. Yeah. But but it, it it normally wouldn't occur to someone in Oxfordshire that there were other peasants elsewhere in the country that they could join forces with. That's a big mindset change. Coming coming forward, wh when you start to get mechanisation on farms. I mean, you've had you've had the move to sheep, so people are out of work, um, don't ha don't have any requirement for their labour, and then you get automation. Um, you talk in the book also about. I mean, there are a variety of captains, but but the most interesting, I think, is Captain Swing. So, tell me about him. Captain Swing is a fantasy. Really, no individual can be described as Captain Swing. I mean, I, I love Captain Swing because it's such a wonderful campaign. And, and I particularly like the way that, that it works with a series of threats and mysteries, um, sort of anonymous letters, blood and vengeance against your life and your property for taking away our labor with your thre threshing machine. Seven of us near your dwelling house, see how local that is, have agreed that if you do not refrain from your threshing machine, we will thresh your rick with fire and bathe your body in blood. It's this sort of ugh, extraordinarily over-the-top rhetoric. And it's, it's people who are pushed to their absolute limit by the onset of um, mechanized threshing. Um, threshing provided reliable seasonal labor. So as an academic, I'm going to make an analogy. Most academics actually rely on a bit of summer school teaching and lecturing um, to fund their holiday spend. Um, and therefore, COVID hit that quite hard. 
and academics got quite restless and unhappy without with that loss of income. But it's not that they need it to live on. Threshing, however, was actually, I mean, by this time, because of enclosures and because of the general kind of problematic fall of wages and also a series of disastrously bad harvests, people were increasingly needing that work in threshing to keep going. And moreover, it was fraught with a series of rituals like gleaning and collecting crammings that enabled you to maximize the amount of grain you and your family could lay hold of. So removing all of that at a stroke to an anonymous machine, taking away both wages and direct access to the materiality of the grain crop was an absolutely terrible blow. And this led to a spreading phenomenon where it seems to have been conducted by a kind of whisper campaign, starting in Kent and spreading outwards from there with people probably spread partly through newspapers, people's or ballads and songs. There are lots of songs from the swing years. People sort of gradually starting to hear about this and putting it into practice in their own area as the lord of their own domain buys a threshing machine and they become aggrieved. So there were probably more than one captain swings? Oh, there were many captains, many captains swing, many, many captains swing. I mean, it's a wonderful, people, historians have really struggled with why captains swing. And it's generally agreed that it refers both to the threshing flail and that there was actually somebody who was in charge of sort of keeping a rhythm for all the threshers, who was sometimes called the captain and was in charge of threshing. So the person who sort of acted to mechanize and regularize threshing before the machine could be described as Captain Swing. But it also refers to a gallows and a body swinging on a gallows. Yeah. So it's a threatening term as well. It's a term that says you're next. Now, when we come forward from Captain Swing to the middle of the 19th century and you have a lot of things going on, you've got the famine in Ireland and the Corn Laws um, and you've got the Poor Law Reform. Um, first of all, what what were the Corn Laws? I, I mean, I keep reading about the great reforms and all the rest of it, but what were the Corn Laws doing they were essentially an artificial inflation of the price of it, corn is really wheat, the price of grain in England to ensure that the price of grain wouldn't fall and landowners' profits would be protected. But it's probably obvious, as I say that, that the result was that the price of anything made with corn or anything dependent on corn or wheat was um, therefore artificially kept high. Which the poorer people obviously didn't like. No, indeed, um, which led to massive suffering because it was like riotous food inflation was like that because it was that. Um, wages didn't rise in proportion. And as a result, there was a campaign to repeal the Corn Laws, which was ultimately successful, but not until around mid-century. But was there violence associated with that campaign? There was, but I wouldn't describe it as riotous violence. I would say that the anti-Corn Law campaign was on the whole a successful political movement based on and arising out of two things that are 
kind of quite complex, really. One was the fear of revolution. Um, the Reform Act in Britain was really the result of uh, a different kind of way of responding to the fear of the French Revolution. Mm. Um, in exactly the same way, the anti-corn law campaigns spearheaded by actually the elite, including Robert Peel, um, ultimately prime minister, um, was an effort to prevent things from getting so bad that guillotines would be being set up in the centre of London. But it was also something else which is maybe a little bit more interesting, and that is it arose directly out of the campaign for abolition, the abolition of slavery. Hmm. Many of the same people were involved. Many, Much of the same kind of rhetoric was involved. Um, it was portrayed as a moral reform act because it was felt that it would um, – that the corn laws were preventing ordinary people from bettering themselves by their own efforts and by their own diligence um, and were instead impeding the work of um, intelligent and able laborers to improve things for their families. It was perfectly accurate. So the corn laws, I mean, it's a campaign. It's, it's led in some respects by the elite and it's sort of defanging yeah. violence and the poor. It, it was, yeah, exactly. It was meant to defang. Yeah, it was meant to prevent the eruption of actual street violence of the kind that we might associate with the French Revolution. It was an attempt to say, look, see, we're listening to you. We understand that you're having problems and we're going to do something to help. And, and in a way, it was sincere. And it's funny to look back on the 19th century. They did work really hard to try and establish how much hardship the corn laws were causing. And lots of vicars filled out surveys of what their parishioners were eating, which are gold dust to the food historian, obviously, but make for very depressing reading in other respects. Um, they had a parliamentary commission to look into food poverty and, and really ask themselves hard questions about how they could best alleviate it. But it was also not at all disinterested, really. It was an effort to prevent the overthrow of the upper classes um, in, across the British Isles and to ensure the continuance of their rule by giving way on one particular issue. I'm, I'm going to do a thing that historians probably hate and ask you um, to talk about the present moment. It seems to me, um, naively, that a lot of the factors that conspired in the past to trigger uprisings are present in the UK today. Um, there's food poverty, there's food inflation, there's disenfranchisement, there's uh, a widening gap between the elites and, and, and the less elite. Wh why haven't we seen food riots or violence associated with poverty? It's a really interesting question, and it's a, an important question, actually, the bet that the ruling class always make in every era is the same, that they can somehow either exert enough force or um, manage to persuade the vast majority of people to be quiescent. And it's always a wager that people will just more or less sit there and take it and do their best with the amount of pottage they have. And actually, history suggests that that is a wager that, and that at times it can go catastrophically wrong for the ruling class if your name is Romanov or you know, alternatively Louis XVI. I think it's actually because though 
there's a massive cost of living crisis. People aren't actually starving. Um, I know that's a really horrible thing to say, but if you compare it with, I'm probably the last substantial popular uprising in Britain, if we don't count the poll tax riots, and I'm not sure whether we should, was the Jarrow marches. And in the early 1930s, people in the north were actually starving. Um, and I'm not sure that that's happening now. People are very badly nourished. If I think if it's going to happen, I think it's probably going to happen in the winter, um, because fuel poverty is a thing. I mean, the, the price of oil's just gone up again to ninety dollars a barrel, um, and that's going to push food inflation up again. For people, though, to riot, they have to think that their rioting is going to change something. And I think one reason we're not seeing a lot of popular unrest is that people have lost any hope that anyone can change anything, really. I mean, arguably, the Brexit referendum was all held and organized around the belief that a very simple, easy-to-understand action leaving the European Union would change things a lot. And I think part of the political disillusionment we're seeing now is the realization that actually there weren't very many changes, and those that there were weren't at all what they were said they were going to what, what it was said they were going to be. So I think we're seeing a lot of political inertia at present, but that could change quite fast. Um, and I think if people start, if we have a very cold, snowy winter, and food inflation goes up again, yeah, I think hang on to your hats. Diane Perkis, whose book, English Food, A People's History, has just won the Best Food Book of 2023 from the Guild of Food Writers. And as I said at the outset, the book covers a huge range of topics and is much, much more than a historical survey. I'll put a link to it in the show notes at eatthispodcast.com. And also because this is one of those episodes but I kind of wanted auditory footnotes. I'll add some links to the specific uprisings that Diane Perkis mentioned by name. Wikipedia has you covered. A quick apology if you tried to listen to the previous episode on milk and encountered only a blank page. My fault, I updated something I shouldn't have and messed up the site, and I didn't realize it at the time. But it's all good now, so sorry. And if you notice anything amiss, or if you just want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line, jeremy at eatthispodcast.com. My thanks, as ever, to all the lovely people who support the show with a donation. They help to keep the show free for everyone and to make transcripts available. You can join them at eatthispodcast.com slash supporters. And don't forget, it really helps to find new listeners if you leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. So, thank you. For now, though, from me, Jeremy Chappas, and Peter's Podcast, goodbye. Thanks for listening.